It's a pleasure to have as our morning show guest this morning here on WGTD, Professor Oliver Hayward, Assistant Professor of History at UW-Parkside and a Russian Studies Specialist, and uh, my European History Professor of many more years ago than I think either of us would like really want to remember. But uh, Professor Hayward, again, this, uh, this spring is going to be leading an, another trip to Russia and uh, Hungary as well. So we're going to hear a little bit about that trip, the one that's coming up. You might be interested in uh, uh, perhaps taking part in that trip. It sounds like a wonderful opportunity. We're going to talk about some of Professor Hayward's past trips as well and take a look a little bit at the, the political geography of uh, Eastern Europe, of Russia and Eastern Europe and talk about some of the changes that have been going on there. You're going to find this an interesting conversation, I'm sure. Professor Hayward, first of all, let's have the, the nuts and bolts about this spring's trip. When are you going, and what are you going to see? Oh, okay. I'm taking a group of students and people from the community, and both groups are equally welcome, to Russia and Hungary starting on the 11th of March and lasting for two weeks. So we'll be returning on the 25th of March. Uh, the cities on our itinerary this time will be starting off in Moscow, then we'll visit a fascinating little town near Moscow called Suzdal and move on from that area to St. Petersburg and then fly to Budapest, Hungary for the last leg of our visit. Okay. How much does it cost? Twenty-five fifty, and it's all-inclusive other than a few lunches in Budapest, and it is really all-inclusive. You should take along a little money for souvenirs and so forth, but basically all needs are taken care of. Okay. And I understand you have uh, a course that you teach in preparation for the, the trip. Yes. Thursday afternoons prior to our trip, we'll be meeting for two or three hours each week for me to give you as much as I can in the way of preparation for what you're going to see over there and how to get the most out of it. How do you go about arranging these trips? Are there companies out there that do that sort of thing? Yes. I had a company in Washington, D.C. for a long time, but now I've located one in Milwaukee that really? does most of my nuts and bolts arrangements. And the person who is my direct contact person used to live in the former Soviet Union, and she has a number of personal ties over there, so she's very helpful in getting any special requests that we may wish to make taken care of. Do you travel between the cities by airplane? We will travel, in this case, uh, part of the time by bus and part of the time by airplane. And one trip that's particularly enjoyable for many people is an overnight train trip in this case, from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Sounds delightful. You took uh, a similar trip last year. Yes. What what stops did you hit last year? Last year we did Russia, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Tell us a little bit about last year's trip. What last, was it like? Last year's trip was very interesting and, and in many respects quite enjoyable, and yet at the same time you saw a number of pieces of evidence of difficulties over there and so forth. Um Poland was my first visit to that country, other than very brief stops there, and I was very impressed with Poland's uh, prosperity to a considerable extent. The country seems to really have recovered a great deal from its worst uh, periods after World War II, uh, and we were welcomed very graciously there and had a number of specifically interesting experiences, not the least of which was a visit to Auschwitz, Auschwitz and Birkenau. What was that like? It was something that I thought I was ready for before I went, and yet there's no way you can prepare for it. It's just psychologically, emotionally, extremely difficult to deal with, and yet it's something I think most people would find a very interesting experience. Indeed. How about uh, the Czech, was it the Czech Republic? Yes, Czech Republic. 
Uh, I had been there before, so it was a little less surprising to see the prosperity that has arrived in that country, but it's now a very much thriving part of Eastern Europe, and uh, the only problem there, perhaps, is they've learned free enterprise a little too well, and prices are tending to go rather rapidly upward, but they certainly are a very comfortable place to visit now. I would guess that's not really surprising, considering the history of Czechoslovakia. That's true. Czechoslovakia was always kind of a model in Eastern Europe of what a small democracy can accomplish when it's left to its own devices. Okay. How is is there an awareness in Czechoslovakia of the uh, the Prague Spring going back to the to the sixties? Is that still in the forefront of people's minds? I don't think it's in the forefront, but I think it's an awareness. I think that's the right term, and uh, therefore it sort of gives them a perspective with which to judge what's going on today and to be aware that it did not come easily and that they need to be wary of uh, possible dangers to their current accomplishments. As you visited Poland and the Czech Republic, both of which, as you mentioned, are, are doing well economically, is there much evidence of American or Western business businesses being there? You, do you see Chrysler plants and General Motors plants and the rest? Absolutely. And in fact, in um, Prague, we had the occasion to watch an American film actually in the process of production uh, oh, in really? the middle of the day along one of the main streets in Prague. It is also, however, associated with one of the stories from the Czech Republic of somewhat less positive nature. I believe Tom Cruise is involved in the production of this film, hmm. and he originally contracted to do this film in Prague, and the, he was to pay the city a certain amount of money for it. After he had been filming for some time there, the city raised the price about tenfold putting Mr. Cruz in a very difficult position because he really felt he was being held up to some extent, yet he couldn't just uh, pull out because he had already placed a substantial investment in producing the film. So there is sometimes a little bit of a problem in a, a bit of aggressive marketing <laughs> going on over there. That's learning capitalism too well. Yes, as, exactly. As is Prague a pleasant city to visit? Very pleasant. It? it has a wonderful historical architecture about it that my group thoroughly enjoyed taking a look at, but it also has many of the aspects of a modern society as well. And uh, I think it's a nice combination of the historical with a very progressive current society. We also had the occasion to see a political rally in Prague. And this was quite a revelation because, of course, Prague at one time was one of the most repressed of the Eastern Bloc countries. But uh, actually, this was conducted with a great deal of grace on both sides. The people doing the rally didn't get out of line. The police stayed politely aside and let the speakers say their piece. Uh, so I thought it was one of the more encouraging aspects of what I saw in the Czech Republic. Is Warsaw, just, I would say, from an aesthetic and architectural point of view, a less interesting city than uh, than Prague? I expected to find Warsaw rather dreary from reports that mm -hmm. I had heard and read in the past, and I was pleasantly surprised that it is beginning to come out of that situation, and they've dressed up the city a good deal, and there's now a number of prosperous shops and smaller enterprises along many of the streets of Warsaw. It's a very clean city. The people are very proud of it. I think that they keep everything pretty neat. And they, too, have an interesting historical heritage that they're very happy to show visitors. So I, vis I enjoyed Warsaw, I think, a good deal more than I had expected. Really? Yes. How about your Russian stops last year? The Russian stops were very interesting. Uh, Moscow had a lot of evidence of the increasing turn to privatization there, but also a good deal of evidence of the black market. Um, 
the mafia's activities are basically something that the ordinary tourist ordinarily is not going to have direct occasion to experience, but you do hear a lot of talk about the mafia, and it does seem to affect behavior of many Russians in various ways. Um, but the city is in rather better condition also than perhaps uh, reports in the West have indicated, and most of the major aspects of it are still functioning efficiently. I remember somebody used the phrase that Russia was going to become the first criminal republic or something like that. Is that overdrawing the influence of crime it in is that area? It is overdrawing it. The mafia performs an important function right now. With the downfall of communism, a lot of the basic services in the country and specifically in the cities were no longer being performed because the apparatus had been dismantled as part of the fall of communism. And under those circumstances, since there was something needing to be done and people were willing to pay for those services to be done, organized crime happened to be the most readily available facility for doing so. And they are, to some extent, regarded as almost a necessary evil and therefore not perceived with quite the same fear and loathing that the term mafia might evoke in the West. How about the cultural attractions of Moscow? Cultural attractions of Moscow are still a delight, everything from the ballet, though many Muscovites tend to criticize the current level of artistic accomplishment of the ballet. I think internationally they're still highly regarded. And uh, there are a number of art museums now that are reopening, and some of the modern art that was previously suppressed is now available for one's inspection. Whether one likes it or not is another matter, but uh, the musical aspects of uh Muscovite life are also still very attractive to this day as well. They are, however, all more expensive than they used to be, and this is sort of a shame for the ordinary Muscovite mm -hmm. who can no longer afford many of them, less of a problem for the tourist because the exchange rate has tended to take that change into account. How about the, the media, the newspapers, the radio, the television? Of what quality are they and uh, how independent are they? We had the opportunity in this last visit to actually meet with the editorial board of a, one of the leading Russian periodicals, Ogyonok, which means little flame. And Ogyonok was one of the leaders during the Gorbachev period and sort of pushing Gorbachev toward maybe more reforms than he intended to carry out, and therefore was at the time regarded as one of the outstanding progressive periodicals. After events got even more reform than people had expected. Ogyonok became criticized for going too slowly and not being reformist enough. But I think the problem was for them that they were afraid that if they got too aggressive, the political authorities might crack down on them. And this, in fact, did occur to not only Ogyonok, but many other periodicals and newspapers as well, most often by control of newsprint and the government controlled the prices of newsprint because it basically had a monopoly on it and could shut down opposition newspapers and magazines by denying them access to newsprint if they chose to do so. Today, Ogyonak is interesting in that it claims to be non-political, and the editor with whom we had a very nice discussion emphasized this point, but several of my people pointed out to him that virtually every topic the magazine deals with is political in some fashion, and he had, in fact, to admit that was the case. But I think there's more caution today, maybe not quite the outspoken and really critical journalism that we saw during certain periods under Gorbachev, but still relatively open press, subject to some financial pressures primarily. Sure. The fact that the, the press is not as... Uh 
uh, as critical. Have they been co-opted in any fashion by the government, or is is it just that sort of the prevailing uh, feeling in, in yeah, Russia I th- now? I think part of it is that some of them have knuckled under to government pressure. There's no question mm-hmm. about that, in my opinion. The second problem, however, is that as westernization has moved into the country, in Moscow in particular, there is a tendency for a kind of um, lurid popular press type of approach to get most of the sales. And given the realities of needing to be staying financially solvent, uh, newspapers and magazines sometimes have tended to be just a little too sensational and not concentrated on hard issues as they used to do. How is the day-to-day life of the average Muscovite? Very tough. Really? Um, it is probably not quite as tough, again, as we have been led to believe in the West, but it is tough, and probably the principal problem is fear of the future or great uncertainty mm-hmm. about the future. Sure. And everybody I've talked to, and I have a number of friends now in various Russian cities that I always visit when I go over there, uh, express this uncertainty and, and real concern about what their future might be. Job stability is one question. To some extent, inflation and, and various aspects of economic uh, difficulty. Uh, and also, there's a number that are concerned about a revival of power by the KGB types, uh, that the apparatus of national security, as it's euphemistically referred to, may be reasserting its influence in Russian society, and I was interested to see how often that point came up in my discussions. You, of course, have been going to Russia for, uh, what, some 15 years now? 1980 was your first trip? Mm -hmm. How has it changed? Oh, the change is so enormous that whereas I used to lead study tours over there every other year, I can no longer bear to do that (laughs) because change occurs so dramatically within a given year, I need to get back and, and check it out. So the, the change has just simply been astounding. In some periods, more rapid than others, but the overall change just sort of continues more or less inexorably, and uh, it, one always likes to check out which specific directions it's going in in the last year. As, <coughs> as Americans visiting Russia, do you have, again, compared to 15 years ago, do you have more freedom of movement? Do you have more freedom of choosing where you want to stay and what yes. you want to see? Yes, I, in fact, pretty much set up my itinerary now totally according to what I'm interested in and not according to a kind of limited set of options, as was the case back in 1980 when I first began doing this. And while you're there, you have very little sense that you're being watched and that there's any really serious interest in what you're doing, quite frankly. Uh, And my friends, who at one time were real careful as to how I would communicate with them, for example, using public payphones instead of from the hotel, no longer express many concerns on that issue, though a few have recently begun to again say probably the payphone is the better way to do it. But by and large, I I think we don't have any sense of some sort of closing in around us of uh, authorities, whereas in 1980 that was undoubtedly a major concern of a lot of us. You could really kind of sense it, even if you couldn't see it directly. Are you still assigned an in-tourist escort when you're in the country? Yes, but that's to our benefit because the uh, in-tourist guide gives us our uh, understanding of what's going on, and generally speaking today, they're very outspoken. Uh, When certain changes in interpretation of Russian history are taking place, often the in-tourist guides led the way and gave interpretations that I thought were 
fairly far beyond what the uh, widely accepted belief of that time was in the West. They were often very critical, especially of the Stalin period and its abuses. Have any members of your groups uh, ever had any uh, overt contact with, with security, any problems where they were told not to go someplace or something like that? Yes, uh, particularly in 1980 when it was my fault because it was my first <laughs> trip. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't screen my participants quite as well as I should have. And a couple of them blatantly ignored and, and violated Soviet regulations, and we got called on it and had a couple of very interesting interviews with the authorities, which actually in retrospect became kind of an important experience sure. from the trip. But it was really something that, frankly, a couple of my people asked for. And uh, I've learned since to sort of try to make sure people that are quite that adventurous find other trips to take. How many people do you typically take on a trip? I aim for a group of around 15. This is an ideal-sized mm -hmm. group to travel, at least in, in Russia and Eastern Europe, with for various reasons. It's big enough that you get the attention of the authorities when you want it to try to get some event, for mm -hmm. example, that might otherwise be difficult to get tickets for, and yet small enough that we can really do things almost as individuals while the trip is going on. How has the attitude, again, of the everyday Muscovite or Russian changed toward Americans? I think it remains basically positive, which has always been the case ever since we first went there. I always felt one of the best things about our trips was the way in which we brought America to the Russians and showed them what a wonderful country it is and how much we have to offer. I would say probably now they may be a little bit more jealous because they expected the benefits of contact with the West to come somewhat more rapidly than they have for most people. So today maybe there's a little bit of sense of regret that things have not gone more smoothly, but basically still very favorable to my group. My group, I think, usually tends to be very friendly and warm anyway, but uh, I think the Russians respond in kind. That's us Midwesterners, you know. We're it may well be, yes. <laughs> we have some traits that I think are very uh, open and and the Russians find very attractive. Well, that's what I was saying. The, the Russians are, are like that. They're, they're people who enjoy living and, and mm -hmm. enjoy have, friends and family. They see the big picture also. They're, of course, a huge country physically and politically, and like us, they've tended to have a view of the world in which they play an important role, and it's important to them. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of uh, similarities between Russians and Americans that make us easy to get along with. Do the Russians have a feeling of uh, disappointment now that they are no longer one of the two superpowers in the world? They're an ex- Superpower is that? Is that something again that's in the in the Russian consciousness? I think that at one time they almost welcomed that development because with superpower status came responsibility, and it was often an expensive responsibility. But I think today they may feel that they're being pushed around a little too much, and therefore they'd like to see a return to a major power status at least. And I saw an interesting article recently by. John Armstrong, who used to teach political science at UW-Madison, in which he says that Russia is, in fact, going to be aspire to be a great power, but not a superpower, and that there's sort of an intermediate area there to which they now hope to point their efforts to be more than they are today in the world, but not what they once were in the Cold War. 
We're talking today with Oliver Hayward, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and a Russian Studies Specialist. He is leading a trip uh, for which students and the public uh, are both invited to Russia and Eastern Europe, March 11th to March 25th of 1996. And we'll give you all the details on uh, that trip, including phone numbers to call when we finish up our conversation with uh, Professor Hayward today. The, uh, Professor Hayward, the Russian elections are coming up in just a matter of a few days. What's at stake? A great deal is at stake, I think. Um, it's important not to overestimate the final outcome because in all likelihood there will be no clear majority for any party or any major political group. So it's not as though we're going to have a real clear focus in the next parliament. But at the present time, with President Yeltsin clearly in a great deal of physical distress, having just suffered his second heart attack this year. And with that second heart attack, I think his credibility as a leader, particularly a future leader of the country, has been severely hurt. Uh, I think it already was in great danger anyway, but now I think it's been fatally hurt. Uh, this gives Parliament rather more leeway to perhaps exercise its potential power than it had when Yeltsin was more firmly in control. He had carefully negotiated a constitution which gave the president a great deal of power. And in particular, he has the power to veto legislation in a manner that's almost impossible to override in the Russian constitution. But if, in fact, he's been as badly disabled as a leader as I believe, then parliament almost by default has a little more room for some serious negotiation here. Again, I'm going to ask you to to plumb the minds and hearts of the average Russian. How do they feel about Boris Yeltsin? It is my impression, this may be a function of the particular people I talk to in Russia, so perhaps it's a seriously skewed sample, but there has been a good deal of disillusionment with Yeltsin for some time. And also among a number of my acquaintances, the feeling that he was almost more a figurehead being manipulated behind the scenes by individuals, many of whom we don't even know the names of in the West because they tend to try to keep relatively anonymous, mm. and that his real influence on policy has been minimal and that his primarily f primary function has been to manage Russia's relations with the rest of the world, where he clearly can carry out that function reasonably effectively if he's in good health. But in domestic policy, there's been a pretty widespread feeling that he didn't have that much control over events and developments. That doesn't sound a great deal different than what we've uh, had, had in Russia for almost most almost all of this century, then, is it? Well, in one sense, of course, under someone like Stalin, you had too much power concentrated <laughs> in the uh, head of state. And to some extent, perhaps under Brezhnev and to a lesser degree under Khrushchev. So there have been times, and this may be part of the problem, that Russians tend to look to their executive for rather more exercise of power than we would expect or want to see, perhaps in the West. And they're not getting that right now, and that disturbs some of them. The elections on the 17th, are those just parliamentary elections, or is yes. Mr. Yeltsin up as well? No, the He's parliamentary there. elections are on the 17th of December. Mr. Yeltsin's position goes up for election, I believe, next June. So okay, the presidential so it's not that elections. far away. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> any any prospects? Are there any names that are floating to the top as possible opponents for Yeltsin? Yes, I, I think actually Yeltsin had made a commitment not to run again. 
though we know from politics everywhere in the world that isn't necessarily totally binding. But I think the health situation has made it very likely that he won't run again. Um, the concern many Westerners had, of course, was in Zhirinovsky, because the performance of his group back in 93 led many people to fear this was the wave of the future. My own perception was that Zhirinovsky was much more show than he was actual ability to win a major election, and developments since then have suggested the Zhirinovsky boom is pretty well over and that his standing in the country is lower, markedly lower. He is running for the parliamentary election, and it's interesting to notice he is using a stripper as part of his television ad campaign. And I think that's instructive. It's Willie Horton, I guess. I suppose so, but it's instructive because it seems to me what it's suggesting is a certain desperation on his part. And secondly, the thing about Zhirinovsky's candidacy all along was that it was mostly show and mostly appealing to a pretty low level of the Russian population's interest. And the other side of this, of course, is I think it's very difficult for Russians to take him seriously when he's doing this sort of thing. So I don't think Zhirinovsky is really a major factor in this election, other than perhaps drawing off some votes that might be otherwise given to other candidates. How are Russia's relations with the other republics? With some of the other re republics, they're actually quite good. Uh, Belorussia, in particular, Russia's Slavic neighbor to the west, has developed closer and closer ties with Russia again because there are a number of particularly economic reasons why this is to Belarus's advantage. Uh, Russia's relationship with some of the Central Asian states has become quite good of late, and there too there's a number of real economic advantages, especially in trade, that both sides derive from an improvement in relations. With Ukraine, the relationship is a much more strained one, but not totally hostile. That's that's an area that still needs, I think, to be worked out by both countries to their mutual advantage. So it's a mixed bag, actually. I'd like to talk a little bit, you're a historian, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the pursuit of history in, in Russia, mm. the former Soviet Union. How How serious a discipline is it? I mean, they did not have much practice doing good history for a long time in in Russia. And I'm curious if there are historians now working, what kind of work they're doing. And I'm curious as well how they view Khrushchev comes to mind, because I remember him so well from when I was growing up, and Mr. Gorbachev, too. Yeah, it's a real good question. Uh, as it happened a year ago, in, in our stay in Russia, we stay with a family in St. Petersburg, typically, so I get a chance to actually talk to people at some length over several days. And I stayed a year ago with a woman who is the principal of a whole group of secondary schools in the city of St. Petersburg. And I asked her about the effect of an event that had occurred during Gorbachev's time in office in which final exams and history courses were suspended at the end of the school year because the history had been changing so rapidly that it was perceived to be harmful for the students to have to take an exam when they didn't really know the answers because they weren't being told a clear pattern. And she, interestingly enough, denied this had ever happened, which I know from a lot of separate documentation did in fact happen. And I think it reflects the difficulty of coming to grips with the country's history that many Russians still feel 
that they were told a number of things once upon a time which now clearly were not so. Mm-hmm. But the new variations sometimes have a lot of different aspects to them, so it's hard to tell which is the correct one. Um, and I think the study of history is, if anything, even more difficult today, not because of repression and not because the state will insist on your saying a particular line, but because getting a handle on the truth is often extremely difficult. And this has to do also with archives that have been lost and records that have been destroyed. So it's the life of a historian is a very tough one today, maybe even more so than under Stalin, where you at least knew where you stood, however bad it was from the standpoint of integrity. Okay. What are your impressions of the, the quality of uh, Russian science and medicine? I'm not real qualified to make that judgment. I, I have a colleague at Parkside, Professor Frank Edgerton, who's a historian of science and has some of the same friends I do over there oh, that really? can judge it rather better than I. But I believe that it's a case of certain areas in which Russian science and technology is very strong and other areas in which they're woefully behind the Western world. And it's often a function, as you might expect, of national security considerations. Those areas which were good for the strength of the country's military often got a lot of money and effort and scientific genius poured into them. And other areas that should have been developed were neglected because of the lack of that particular incentive. Is the Russian military hurting at all? I would guess there are more demands on the for the government dollar now from uh, the, than there were... 10 and 20 years ago, is, is the military hurting in any fashion or at least having to go on a bit of a diet uh, as far as that goes? You've identified a major trouble spot in the oh. country as a whole. The, the Russian military is not only hurting, it is suffering very badly. It is underpaid. It often is not, in fact, paid on schedule and so forth. Housing for military personnel is very inadequate and sometimes non-existent. It was sort of ironic when the Russians were pulling out of Eastern Europe and the other former states of the Soviet Union, often the delay in their moving out was attributed to sinister political motives, when in fact it was as a bottom line consideration that they had no housing, no place to put their soldiers if they brought them back from Latvia or (coughs) Poland or wherever the case might be. And that's still a problem today because they haven't had the money since then to provide those facilities uh, even yet. You also, last year, I, I believe last year, did you go to St. Petersburg last year? Yes, I did. And you're going this year again. Yes. And we really didn't talk about St. Petersburg. What kind of a city is that? St. Petersburg is a historical wonder. It was built by Peter the Great at the beginning of the 18th century, basically from scratch and more or less as a monument to his ego, but also for the purpose of strengthening Russia's contacts with the West. It has always been a much more Western city than Moscow, and from the first time we started visiting there, we tended, I think, to feel more welcome in St. Petersburg because they were interested in us maybe more than many Muscovites, and also because we saw a city that looked very Western. It was built, actually, in the 18th century largely from Italian architectural models, in fact, often by Italian architects. And it remains a very Western city to this day, and it's a very easy city, I think, for a Western to kind of get to be familiar with what's going on over there. And they talk very frankly, perhaps more frankly than the Moscovites do. What kind of weather do you run into in March in Russia? 
Another joy of taking Wisconsinites <laughs> on this trip is that Russian weather in March holds no terror for us that we haven't already experienced over here. And basically, it will be very close, maybe uh, a degree or so cooler perhaps than here in March, but very similar. St. Petersburg tends actually to be right around freezing in this time of year. And um, so it's really, uh, if anything, the big problem there is rain, not snow. Moscow can be quite a bit chillier if a big uh, clipper is coming in from the north because it is totally unobstructed. There's nothing standing between the North Pole and Moscow except a lot of flat area and ice in particular. But actually in March, uh, we tend to have pretty decent weather in Moscow as well. And I would expect Budapest would be actually quite pleasant that time of year because the spring has begun to really set in in that, that part of Europe. Oh, that's right. You're going to Hungary this year, aren't you? Yes. We should talk a little bit about that. Have you been to Hungary before? No, this will be my first trip to Hungary. I'm very excited about it, and I've been reading and talking to a number of people who have been to Hungary, and I just expect it's going to be a remarkable experience. It should be. I've heard Budapest is, yes. is a delightful city. Yes, indeed. City to visit. Let's, how is transportation within the cities, if you're in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, getting from one place to another? Any problems? Piece of cake. Really? It has a wonderful metro system in every city of a million people or more in the entire former Soviet Union. They just built the metro mm -hmm. when it reached that number. And the metro system has long been very reliable. It's very clean. In fact, it's a model of what metros should look like but don't look like in many western cities because there's almost no graffiti. Though now with uh, glasnost, there tended to be an outbreak of graffiti that wasn't there before. Um and it's been kept deliberately very inexpensive so people can move about and in order actually to discourage private ownership of automobiles, which is in this case probably working to keep traffic and manageable proportions in the city. So it, it's very easy to get around in either the metro system underground or buses or they even have wonderful old trolley cars. Mm. Uh, so you have actually a number of choices. Mm. And between Russian cities... The train system is often a very good way to travel. It did become for a time somewhat precarious because the criminal element discovered this was a great way to rip off uh, travelers, but they've now taken steps to considerably improve security on the train, so basically that's no longer a major consideration. Let's, let's get back to some politics. Sure. In, uh, in Poland, mm -hmm. Lech Wałęsa recently lost a re-election for president <coughs> And he was uh, replaced by an ex-communist, uh, is it Kwasniewski? Kwasniewski, uh, Kwasniewski. Yes. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Well, from what I understand, this was, first of all, Kwasniewski downplayed his communist background, as those who have been taking power in many parts of Eastern Europe have tended, for the most part, to do. After all, in a sense, the only major pool of political talent available that had much experience was, in many cases, former Communist Party members. And Kwasniewski went out of his way to portray himself as just an ordinary guy, and he did the usual family bit on television, and he deliberately reassured the Polish people that this was not going to be a dramatic break with the past. Uh, he favors joining um, the European Union, he favors Poland joining NATO and a whole variety of other measures that uh, Walensa would also agree with. And the problem was that Walensa seems to have sort of taken on a bit of the idea of a dictator himself. Uh, he had, there is a Polish constitution currently being worked up, 
Well, Enzo wanted it to include a very strong presidency, and many people, including some of his former uh, close companions with solidarity, uh, accused him openly of having dictatorial aspirations. There's a very modest uh, presidential palace in Wausau. I think it's called the Belvedere of all things. He had moved out of that and into a much more ornate palace that seemed to be more in keeping perhaps with his aspirations as a future leader. Um, so I think as much as anything, it was a reflection of concern about Wallence's objectives personally, combined with some dissatisfaction in the countryside with the state of the economy. The cities in Poland, I think, are in rather good shape, but some of the peasantry and small-town workers don't feel that they've shared in Poland's prosperity, and to some degree this vote was perhaps a protest against that neglect. What happened in Poland has happened, as you mentioned, <laughs> elsewhere in Eastern Europe with former communists yes. coming back to uh, to win elections. What has these ex-communists' track record been? Since they've returned to mm -hmm. power? I think it's been basically uh, pretty much status quo ante. That is to say, they've generally continued the policies of their predecessors with perhaps a little more willingness to intervene on behalf of those who had previously been left out of the economic development. So maybe a little bit of a return to some state involvement in the economy beyond pure free enterprise, but nothing that has caused the population any great concern uh, at that there might be some major return to communism as a whole. How likely is it that, that any of the Eastern European countries, and we'll, we'll include Russia as well and the other former Soviet republics, um, how susceptible might they be to some kind of a Strict a military takeover, either of the the right former communists, or from uh, excuse me from the, the left former communists, or from the right. Mm -hmm. Is there a right wing building in in these countries a, a political opposition? I I believe that there is one to some extent. I have to say I can only speak with any authority at all on Russia mm -hmm. because that's a country I've studied. Um, but of course, Zhirinovsky. Part of the concern about Zhirinovsky has been that he is an extreme Russian nationalist and would represent a return to the sort of thing I think you're talking about. And I think that that boomlet has pretty well been deflated. There is, however, now another candidate, uh, a general who was uh, head of an elite paratrooper division in Afghanistan, so something of a war hero, by the name of Lebed, L-E-B-E-D who is probably going to inherit some of that nationalistic vote that Zhirinovsky got last time around. And Lebiad is a more formidable factor here because he's more moderate, yet at the same time aspires to a return to somewhat greater uh, status in the world for Russia. As an army man, he is very concerned about the plight of the military that you and I have already discussed mm -hmm. here. Uh, he probably is going to gain a lot of votes from army people precisely for that reason, whereas many army people thought Zhirinovsky was just nuts and would not have considered voting for him in any circumstances. What we have going for us, however, in Russia in terms of not finding this too alarming is that the Russian state has generally had a tradition historically of very little military involvement in politics. Um, people might find that surprising because we think of it as a militaristic society in some ways, but Stalin was the first to crush any possible military aspirations on political power. The Great Purges, and particularly his Blood Purge of 1937, 
wiped out much of the uh, Soviet military leadership. And that is part of a much more long-term uh, tendency for the Russian military to just accept political leadership and do what they're told to do. So I think that in the future, Libyet is going to have to overcome that kind of traditional concern about the military's power and have to be very reassuring as to what he stands for if he's going to have a real shot at power. But many people believe, and this is based partly on a public opinion poll taken last month that indicates he was favored by more people than any other candidate, including Yeltsin, including Chernomyrdin, the prime minister, who for a time was considered to be a possible successor. Uh, Libyad was considered, was received the most support from the Russian public. It was far less than a clear majority, but it was still kind of an impressive performance for someone who has until recently been relatively unknown. When you say the name Gorbachev to a Russian, what sort of reaction do you get? <laughs> a very different reaction than when you say it in the West. <laughs> uh, Gorbachev has enjoyed a little better press in the last year or two as conditions got fairly bad politically in Russia. But there's still uh, a tendency to associate, on the part of most Russians, Gorbachev with a period of serious economic decline. And particularly when you and I talked originally about the sense of fear about the future, uh, many people blame Gorbachev for that uncertain future, even though he's been long gone now. And uh, therefore, at the present time, though I had thought at one time he might make a comeback, you don't see much evidence of it being a, a popular alternative for most Russians. Have you read any of his books? Yes. Mm -hmm. What kind of a writer is he? Um, he's nowhere near as good a writer, in my opinion, as he was a speaker. Although my command of spoken Russian is not that great, I tend to read it better than mm -hmm. I speak it. Uh, I saw a number of his addresses, addresses, particularly while I was in Russia, when he was addressing party congresses and what have you, and he's an extremely effective speaker, and even when you couldn't understand everything he said, the manner clearly conveyed somebody in authority and in control. Um, and that doesn't come across as much in his writing, and maybe it's just plain difficult to do that in, in written form. Okay. Professor Hayward, thank you so much. It has been a, a delight having a chance to, to talk again. It's been much too long, and we want you to come back sooner. We can talk some more. I would enjoy that very much. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, though, we'd like you to remind our listeners about the, the dates of your uh, coming trip to uh, Eastern Europe where you're going to be going, and how much it costs, and where they can get some more information, please. Oh, gladly. We'll be leaving on the 11th of March for two weeks spent in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Budapest as the leading parts of our visit. It is open equally to Parkside students and to members of the community, and the interaction has been very enjoyable to see over the years between the two groups. The cost of the trip will probably be $2,550, $2,550, and to reach me to get further information, I have written up a four-page description of what we'll be doing and okay. so forth, which I'll be very happy to send out to you. Call me at 595-2467, or if you don't get an answer at that phone, call the history office at 595-2316 and just ask for information about the trip to Russia in March. Okay. 
And if our, our listeners need those phone numbers uh, again, just call me here at WGTD. We have them and we can pass them along. Professor Hayward, thank you so much. It has been a delight having a chance to talk again. Oliver Hayward, uh, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, a Russian Studies Specialist. And if you would like, again, some more information about his tour of uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, March 11th through 25th, you can call his office at UW Parkside, 595-2467, or the History Department, 595-2316. Again, our thanks to Professor Oliver Hayward for joining us today here on WGTD, FM 91.1.